Hey, it's Julie. My dog is a very special boy, and he is also blind. So he was playing in the snow. He started sliding and got real fucking freaked out. And all you see are like big red limbs just everywhere. Like, oh, shit. It was at once cute and incredibly sad. You're like, you don't know what's happening. <laughs> like, oh, baby, you don't know where you is. Hey, y'all. It's Emma. My hair is purple. I put pink dye on top of my blue. And if you know anything about color theory, then you'll understand how my hair <laughs> hair is purple now. It looks great. I love it. Thanks. Yeah, I like it too. I wash my hair now like twice a week or something, but for some reason the back is always greasy. Like even after I wash it, I have to like put dry shampoo in when I like blow dry it. Are you washing with oil? I wash and I wash and I wash and I can't get clean. I can never get clean. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously though, it's weird. Oh my God. Yeah, I feel like the older I get, the more gross my body is. And I know I already know that someone's going to be like, John Mulaney did that bit. I'm like, well, yeah, but it's also just a thing that happens. Like your your body gets like more shit going on. And you're just like, well, but why though? Dude, I sat on a heating pad like literally all day yesterday. What was wrong? What did I do that caused my entire body to just be like aching? I didn't do anything. I'm just like over 30 and like slept weird. I'm just like sat on a heating pad all day. So I have like one enlarged pore and this is TMI. This is absurd, but I'm going to say it anyway. I have one enlarged pore under my boob that just gathers stuff. It's like a black hole. Dude, Benny would like leave me for you if he heard that. He'd be like, peace. I heard Jolie has a big (laughs) gaping pore. I heard she has a gaping hole. (laughs) I'm going to get in there and squish shit out of it. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> Speaking of gross, let's talk about Mormons. No, that's that's rude. That's me. <laughs> that's not a great segue, and that's not entirely accurate. There is a lot about Mormonism that is fascinating to people. Today we're gonna talk about very little of that. <laughs> We are going to talk about the guy who created Mormonism. His name is Joseph Smith. And uh, he was a very fascinating man who had a lovely imagination. Shit gets way weirder than I anticipated. So I started this and I was like, yeah, he was probably like a sociopath and like really liked fucking. Same old, same old. Yeah, same old, same old. I was like, it'll be fun. And then like the more I researched, the more I was like, oh, God. And then I kept researching and I was like, there's no way that this is one episode. There just isn't. Yeah. And the more I've researched, the more I've been like, okay, well, I've got to cut it off somewhere. So I'm cutting it off at two episodes. But you guys have got to know that I am, there is way more that I'm going to be able to cover. Well, I thought that we were actually just going to rename the podcast. I read a thing about Mormonism and then this was just it. Yeah, this is, well, (laughs) the problem with that is that as you will see, there's just so much in Mormonism that is just ripe for exposure that there are quite a few podcasts that are just Mormonism. Yeah, I believe it. It's been about 200 years at this point of like shit 
that they've done and that they've prophesied, prophesied, <laughs> prophesied. <laughs> There's definitely like a lot. If you get into the entire history, we're going to only get into the beginning. Two episode shallow dive, shallow dive, big, big topic, big pool. Stick with the metaphor. Get ready to dive the shallow waters of a deep well of fuck. We're stepping in. <laughs> Dip your toes. <laughs> Dip your toes, but for like a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to my husband and like every once in a while, he'll just, I'll make a noise and he'll be like, what did they do this time? <laughs> I'll like say like one thing. But then last night I was like, so let me, let me ask you a question. If it were perfectly legal, would you even want two wives? Because that feels like just a lot. Like I can understand having multiple relationships in the context of like, okay, I want you to have a lot of kids and I want to take care of all of those kids. I want to be the one husband for multiple women. Like that just feels like a fucking nightmare. That just feels awful. <laughs> it does, right? Like why though? Even like we were talking and I was like, hey, you know what? I can understand like having a person that I hang out with every once in a while and then also having you. Mm -hmm. But that's still like way more energy than I have right at this moment. So that would not happen anytime soon. Well, and it's like polyamory, except where like the wives aren't allowed to participate in it, you know, so that's like not cool. So the wives aren't allowed to participate, but also the husbands are told from a very early age, you do not get into heaven, into like the the big heaven, you know, the VIP. You get your own planet shit. Yeah. Unless you have multiple wives with which to make spirit babies. We're not going to touch on that today. But like okay. all of it just feels like too much at all times. So we're going to get into the history of the guy who made the too much and a little bit into the guys who helped carry it forward after he was murdered. We're going to talk about some things that were going on kind of around the time of the creation of the Mormon church, because all of that is pretty important. A couple of the things we've talked about before. One of them is the Second Great Awakening, which is the Protestant religious revival during the early 19th century in the United States. People were bored, right? We've talked about this. 1800s? Boring. No TV. No Pokemon <laughs> Go. Like, what the fuck do you do with yourself? No Animal Crossing. No podcasts. You know what the podcasts were. You would go to a revival. You would listen to a very passionate man tell you how to save your soul. Just like get yelled at and then like dipped in water. <laughs> <laughs> it's go, it's dipping time. <laughs> that has a different meaning. That's a different thing. These movements, these like revivals kind of sparked a lot of different religious movements that we can think of now. So like Pentecostal, Mormon, of course. What is it? Methodist, Baptist. Protestant? No, Protestants are like the OGs. Yeah, the Protestants were like the OGs. That's what came over on the boats to steal land. So... <laughs> <laughs> These people would use what they called circuit riders. And basically they would go town to town, deliver the same fucking speech, you know, dip people in water and move on with their lives and hopefully make a little <laughs> coin. Right. The idea was to have salvation by institution. But before any of that, there was this idea of universalism, which is that Jesus Christ obviously died for your sins. So you're mm -hmm. good. Like, just be a good person. And just be like, Jesus is tight. 
But these people were like, no, you got to still work for it. You got to work for that love. You got to get baptized. You got to do all the things to continue to go to heaven. Yeah, there's no guest list here. Kind of where all of this stuff originated was the burned over district. And that is in, well, you might know this, Western New York State. Like, no. <laughs> You're like, yeah. Definitely that place. So it's called the burned over district because uh, these revivals would just tear ass through town. Um, so out of this also came spiritualism. This was another big thing that happened during the Second Great Awakening. That was kind of tied into folk magic, which was still really, really popular at the time or really widely used, I should say, not necessarily popular. But especially in that area, because you had so many immigrants coming to the USA, rather, through New York, arriving in New York and then mm -hmm. dispersing from there. The burned over district was just a hotbed of a lot of different like folk and old world beliefs. So around this time also, and this is like the mid 1800s, early to mid 1800s was abolition and Indian oppression. Not great times for anyone who had, you know, medium to dark skin. Mm -hmm. President Andrew Jackson, who was an asshole, I put a real see you next Tuesday. He said, what good man would prefer a country covered with forests and ranged by a few thousand savages to our extensive republic, studded with cities, towns, and prosperous farms, embellished with all the improvements which art can devise or industry execute, occupied by more than 12 million happy people and filled with all the blessings of liberty, civilization, and religion. But before that, he was like, Black people should love being here, even if they're slaves. He's a dick. He's an idiot. I hate him. Hey, <laughs> when Europeans came here, they were like, we are clearly awesome. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of buildings. We have art that doesn't look like yours. Look at our buildings. Natives had culture. Natives had art. Natives had everything, but it didn't look like Europeans. So we weren't super interested in what they had to offer. And Europeans specifically thought of anything that they had as being like subpar, right? So that's just a thing. Indians were actively encouraged to adopt European practices and to a large degree forced to adopt European practices. And this comes into play when we talk about some of the ideas of who the Indians intrinsically are. And I'm calling them Indians. I am aware that that is. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Um, this is what they're referred to, like in any of this literature in this time period. Yeah, so, so it's just like I'm, easier. Yeah, it's easier, especially when I'm talking, when I'm quoting things, mm -hmm. I'm going to have to say Indians. So to make it easier, I'm not going to say native or indigenous. I'm going to say Indian because I'm going to have to quote that a lot. TLDR, she's reading. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm currently reading a thing. Europeans were like, we're cool. We're awesome. Y'all suck. We're going to teach you how to be more awesome. We're going to mm -hmm. teach you how to be white is essentially what they were saying. It's just so rude. I really can't imagine looking at another person of another culture and immediately thinking, oh, you must be real dumb. Right. Same here. Like my first thought is usually I don't understand, but that's more about me. It's like the difference between curiosity and judgment. Yeah. So because there was this idea that Europeans are the best when 
the U.S. revolted against British imperialism, there was still this idea that we were the best, but we now had to justify why we weren't in Europe anymore. We had to justify our place in this new America. So what a lot of people did was just kind of either overly identify with native practices to a degree that was just absurd taking their cultural practices and whitening them up, Hmm. merging them with Christianity in a way that didn't really make sense and wasn't really about like two cultures merging, but more about like one culture taking over and then acquiring practices that didn't belong Mm -hmm. to them. And then another was to completely rewrite Indian history. At the time, relations with Native Americans was just, it was still really fraught. This was pretty early in our history as a new country. We didn't have a lot of the formal institutions that we have now, like military presence, banking. A lot of our states weren't even ratified at the time. We were so new that a lot of the things that we think of as common practices as a country just didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So we were still having all of these conflicts with the natives, obviously, because they did not want to leave. And then people were still trying to figure out like how to either work with the natives or get them to fucking go. So that was a thing that was happening. Then there was temperance. So people were concerned about alcoholism. At the time, it was a lot more risky to drink from public water sources than it was to go and have a beer at like a a bar. I don't think they called them bars. Brewery? Public house? Yeah, something like that. Justifiably, there was a lot of alcoholism. People would drink that rather than risk getting sick drinking from like a a standing body of water. So the temperance movement was like a really big deal. It wasn't primarily run by women, but women were like the figurehead of it, right? Because Mm -hmm. nobody wants their husband to come home and beat on them or to like waste all their money at a bar or gambling. Yeah, they're like, get it together, man. Uh, What's cool about this and what I did learn is that the temperance movement directly led to having public water fountains because they were like, how can we make it so that people don't actually need to drink beer to get like hydrated in a way that won't kill them? Yeah. Or if they like go get drunk, they can hydrate as well. The last thing that I wanted to talk about before we get into all of the other stuff is American exceptionalism. So basically, we already came over on boats as people who believed that we were destined for like an amazing gift. Mm -hmm. So we, we came here, we're like, God has prophesied that we were going to find this home and now we have, and it's so welcoming except for the people that we killed. But like, (laughs) funny, not funny. Like I'm laughing because it's right. It's fucking awful. It's so plentiful. And we were clearly like meant to be here. And this was always our home. And that led directly to a few really weird things. One of them is some Protestants believe that American progress would facilitate the return of Jesus Christ and the Christian millennium. Okay, I mean, that's still a thing now, right? Yeah, but the fact that it was specifically about American progress, it was like we've, mm. we've landed on this this new plentiful ground and and Jesus has blessed us with this beautiful nation and, and this signifies that he is going to come back and take us all. Yeah. <laughs> just ridiculous. It is stupid. 
America was considered to be an extension of Europe, but it still almost felt like it had to justify its presence here and had to say, like, no, I'm a big boy. Mm -hmm. Like, I know I acted up, but like I needed to because my parents were being really unfair. Give me time to prove myself, okay? I'll show you. (laughs) So that all led to uh, a lot of really interesting developments that I'm not going to get into just now. But one of them that I can hint at is the idea that because we were now having to justify our place here in this new land as a new nation, there was the idea that was very popular at the time that the indigenous people of this land were one or more of the lost tribes of Israel. Hmm. No, guys, they're white. Don't worry. There are people. They're just, you know, they're lost. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get more into that in a bit. All right. So let's talk about our man, Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith is the creator of Mormonism. And a lot of his original teachings are pretty much what's practiced today. You will hear the term apologists a lot while I'm talking, probably, because current Mormons, specifically people who are like in charge of teaching Mormonism and and all of that business, will actively try to make excuses for why things were the way that they were. That will be a thing that you hear a lot. When I'm talking about apologists, I'm talking about people who said, no, you don't understand the the culture of the time. Or when he said this, it was an allegory. It's like, no, this is a thing that he said and he believed. So Joseph Smith was born to Lucy Max Smith and Joseph Smith Sr. on December 23rd, 1805. Aw, Christmas baby. Um, I put, it sucks to be a Christmas baby, but the family was poor and Joe was just one of 11, holy shit, children. So I doubt there would have been a lot of birthday presents either way. <laughs> like, what would you get in like the 1800s as a gift, you know? One like orange. A, a wooden duck or like, <laughs> you know what I mean? No, like, a wooden what duck is get? too expensive. Unless unless your father whittled it or something. Yeah. A whittled yeah. wooden duck. Whittled wooden duck. Say that three times. Whittled wooden wobbin. He's <laughs> 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 your baby. So a little bit about his parents. Lucy Max Smith was a devout Christian. She also had some folk magic beliefs like scrying and she did some work with herbs, much like pretty much anyone in that time period and in that like location. She wasn't a pushover. She was going to stand up for what she believed was right. She was going to kind of try to get her way to a certain degree, but she never did it like out of a, a thinking that, you know, she was amazing and she was right. It kind of feels like she did it because she wanted everybody to be okay. Matriarch. For sure. She married Joseph Smith Sr. pretty early So as far as I remember, they got married. They were given some land by his family and her family gave like $1,000 or something like that. And that's a fucking lot at the time. So instead of putting the money away and like making sure that, you know, their farm was going to be prosperous and everything. Joseph Smith Sr. sunk all of his money into this weird ginseng business. (laughs) Oh, no. That did not do well. Ginseng. They were set up for success. They were set up to like really do well and he just straight up fucking murdered their chances. No. of being successful. He like so, started a tea company? 
I don't know if he did tea with it or if it was like a powder, like an herbal mixture that he was making, but he was like super into it. And I think they ended up opening a store. Did not go well. He he had a lot Aww. of creditors. They ended up folding and having their first property, I think, repossessed. Poor guy. With this loss and with the like birth of so many children, <laughs> you would think his second round, he might like be a little bit more careful. It did not happen. He was kind of always struggling. So he ended up purchasing a property with his oldest son at one point, even basically his son, while he was alive, was really like making the mortgage payments and was making sure that everything was going well. And then once his son died, everything went to shit again because (laughs) his son wasn't taking care of business. Mm. He kind of seems like the type of guy who's always looking for some way to get rich. He would be a multi-level marketer, 100%. (laughs) He would be like blowing up your Facebook like, hey, do you like being healthy? Selling like Shakeology or like. Yeah, if you do, I have this awesome like new herbal business that I think you're going (laughs) to love. It's just you and five friends. Bring them over. (laughs) (laughs) But first you have to spend $150 on all of the supplies and things you need to sell. That being said, Joe Sr. was not super religious. He was a universalist. He wasn't like really into anything, but he did do some scrying and some other like various folk magic-y kind of stuff. Like I said, like everybody else. Religion was an important focus in the Smith household, but not because everybody fully invested in it, but because there were a lot of arguments at the time. The revivals were going on hardcore. Lucy was like dragging all the kids and and Joe Sr. to like these revivals and then talking about it. And Joe was kind of an alcoholic. And by kind of, I mean, he was an alcoholic. (laughs) And he was just kind of surly about all of it. He just didn't seem to be interested in what she was interested in. And it wasn't like, okay, we can disagree. They would argue with each other about it all the time. So it was like a a point of contention, so much so that it affected the kids. Yeah. To a large degree, I think. So just because Joseph Sr. wasn't like into the religious revivals that were going on doesn't mean that he wasn't having his own experiences. At around the time of Joe Sr.'s father releasing some religious book that he hoped to like sell door to door, Joe Sr. was also reporting having these like visions, these spiritual encounters and awakenings. Ginseng overdose. (laughs) I'm just being dumb. (laughs) Oh, you have no idea how right you might be, actually. (laughs) Really? Yo, this ginseng's fucking me up, dude. (laughs) You know, or peyote or... Any number of things, but we'll talk about that later. But Lucy said, my husband's mind became much excited upon the subject of religion, yet he would not subscribe to any particular system of faith, but contended for the ancient order as established by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ and his apostles. So a month after one of his sons was born, Joseph Sr. had what Lucy termed his first vision. He saw a field and a spirit and the spirit said, this field is the world which lies inanimate and dumb as to the things pertaining to the true religion or order of heavenly things. All is darkness. Lucy and Joe talked about this and they basically determined, oh, so this was the the spirit saying that like the churches are all bad. So we've got to find the right one. 
And she's just like, nice, babe. I'm glad you're talking to God. That's so cool, babe. I support you. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, okay. So as a result of this, Lucy said that Joe seemed more confirmed than ever in the, the opinion that there was no order or class of religionists that knew any more concerning the kingdom of God than those of the world or such as made no profession of religion, whatever. I don't understand the last bit of this, but basically he was just like, (laughs) all of this shit is fucked. I'm not interested in it. And he continued to feel that way for the vast majority of his life until like Mormonism became a thing. Okay. And this is Mormon guy's dad. This is Mormon guy's dad. So this is Joe Sr., not Joe Jr. So he continued to have visions. (laughs) His family's just like, nice, man. Seriously, it's like if you don't like have religion and that kind of thing's happening, like you send someone to like an institution. Seriously, but here's (laughs) the deal. His visions were very real. He was fully experiencing these things. It wasn't just like I had a feeling in my bones that like this thing was happening. It was like they were literal fucking visions. Wow. I mean, what if the Book of Mormon is it? We don't know. We do know. (laughs) I will tell you. Even though he was having these like religious experiences, Joe Sr., the dad, he lamented later that he really didn't give much in the way of religious influence to his children. And he did feel some amount of guilt and he called his mind trifling. So I think he like as an older man, he he felt some regret especially considering Joe Jr., the the guy, Mm -hmm. considering that he was like building this, what appeared to be at the time a a very successful religious practice. Mm -hmm. I think he felt not good enough. Like what he did was like not enough to his family. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a, a few sources. A lot of it is based on like personal accounts and autobiographies, which is a little sus considering the nature. (laughs) So I I can't 100% say that like everything is like spot on, especially when it comes to family. We we have a a tendency to want to uh, sugarcoat certain facts or like make things seem better than they really are because nobody wants to say like, yeah, my my kid was a fucking lunatic. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And then he started a religion. So here's... Here's what happened. (laughs) A lot of it I got from Mormon sources specifically, which, of course, are going to paint it in a much different light than probably was reality. But, you know, these people aren't alive and there weren't a whole lot of great record keeping devices. So really Mm -hmm. all we have is like word of mouth and Mm -hmm. people's autobiographies. So based on what I found, Joe had a pretty rough upbringing, not because he wasn't loved, but because they were poor. And because there was all of this like contention about religion, there were a lot of arguments. His father was an alcoholic and I don't think he got along as well with his dad as he wanted to. I think he was kind of always seeking out his dad's approval. And you'll see that kind of in his behavior as he grows up. Mm -hmm. There was one instance that can kind of show how bad his father's alcoholism was. And it's that when he was seven, he had a crippling bone infection to the point where it was very possible that he was going to die. The doctors decided to try to scrape out the infection, but they offered him because at the time, like anesthetic wasn't commonly acquired. It just didn't happen. They offered him alcohol to sedate him. And he said no. So he did that shit 
stone sober and the bone infection was so bad they had to scrape out so much that he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. Wow. So his father's alcoholism was so bad. He, he didn't even he want, didn't even want yeah. to touch it. Wow. Didn't even want to touch it. And that's not to say he didn't drink later because he might say that he didn't, but he most certainly did. But like that's that's how bad it was. After so many like bad investments on Joe Sr.'s part after ruining his credit in Vermont, where Joe was born, they ended up moving to Palmyra, which, you know, some people said it was like in New York, but other people say it's in Pennsylvania. I'm kind of confused on that. They moved to the Palmyra and Manchester area and their eldest son, Alvin, ended up co-signing a mortgage for a hundred acre farm and they were going to have a new start. Throughout the first couple of years, they made all of their payments on time. Everything was going fine. Joe was out like plying wares and like being a salesman pretty often. It seems like the eldest son ended up becoming more of like a father figure and more of like a, I hate to say it this way because it's not like an incest thing, but like a a husband's, like a secondary Mm. husband's to the mom. Yeah, I got it. He was making sure the payments went in on time. He was keeping everything in line. Mm -hmm. And before he died, he kind of sat down with all the kids and said, like, you guys got to like keep it together. Like he, he made a big impact to the point that his death just upended everything and caused a lot of emotional upheaval. Lucy Mack actually said like she essentially just couldn't get it together. And they started, she started hitting up churches left, right and center to keep her occupied and to make her feel like safe and whole. Joe Sr. on the other hand, fully removed himself from like any sort of religious practice because at the funeral, the minister essentially implied that because Alvin was not baptized, he was going to hell. Mm. Which, why would you say that at someone's funeral? Dick, right? That's such a fucking dick move. Such a dick move. That's like so 1800s though. I know, right? Like, oh, I'm sorry your son died. It's too bad he's burning in hell. (laughs) Excuse me? But you don't have to. Come on down to my church. Not surprising to me. So yeah, when they were doing well, Lucy had like a really a prosperous crafting business. She something with tablecloths. I honestly don't understand. But <laughs> but they were doing really well. And then Alvin died and everything went to shit. They ended up being upended again. They ended up losing that hundred acre farm again. Wow. So when Alvin died. And Lucy was trying to get everyone on board to like find a new faith and to like Lucy, when she was trying to get people to participate in church events with her, said that Joseph, the youngest, Joseph said, now you look at Deacon Jessup. Suppose that one of his poor neighbors owed him the value of one cow. This man has eight small children. Suppose the poor man should be taken sick and die leaving his wife with one cow, but destitute every means of support for herself and family. Now I tell you that Deacon Jessup, religious as he is, would not hesitate to take that last cow from the widow and orphans rather than lose the debt. Wait, what? 
So he was basically saying like all these motherfuckers are greedy and they just want the money. Mm -hmm. They don't care about the people. Deacon Jessup was a longtime Presbyterian and one of the original trustees of the Western Presbyterian Church of Palmyra at its incorporation. So that is the main church that Lucy was going to. Joe Jr. was deeply troubled by how many denominational shifts there were and how vastly different all of the doctrines were. He very much listened to his dad when his dad was like, none of them are real. All of them are like dark and evil Mm -hmm. and we don't know the true word of God and none of these people do either. So he was very very involved in that. And in fact, he probably listened to his parents bicker about this shit constantly because it was like a point of contention. Mm -hmm. One night, Lucy said that she had visited a revival. I don't know if everyone had, but she definitely had visited a revival and she came back and she and Joe Sr. got into it. So mom and dad are arguing about this shit and what happens, but Joe Jr. has his first vision. Oh, shit. So it goes as follows. So he was meditating on his sins. He wanted to know what the true church was. And he was like, yes, God, please tell me what is the one true church that I should follow? And he reportedly saw two divine personages bathed in a pillar of light. One pointed to the other and said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. The male figures are now believed by Mormons to be God and Jesus Christ, as far as I can tell. So the figures told young Joseph not to believe any of the churches because they were all corrupt. And there are like nine different variations of this first story. And he didn't tell this story. So he never told anyone about this shit until he was a full grown man. So who knows if it even happened. So in one story, it is like just two random angels. In another story, it's God and Jesus. In another story, it's God and Jesus. And God doesn't point to the figure to his right. He points to Joe and says, hear him. He is my son. Oh. So that suggests that Joe is like a brother to Jesus. (sighs) He never, he didn't tell anyone about that until he was much older. So this was in a journal entry as far as I remember (laughs) correctly. You know, one time when I was like super young, this like crazy thing happened to me. Now, listen, I know you guys don't believe what I'm saying to you right now. But listen, when I was 12, I was visited by God and he told me I was like Jesus. I'm not kidding. I'm being honest. (laughs) Joe did actually go to school. He wasn't completely uneducated, but it was pretty sporadic based on the economic needs of his family. So if the farm needed help, the farm needed help and he wasn't going to go to school. That's just how it was. There is evidence that his family received this newspaper called Register and the Herald. And the reason I say this is because this newspaper typically ran stories on things like the Hebrew origin of the American Indians, which if you can remember, we talked about before. That's with some like, like the, haterade. Listen, guys, I know you think you know where you're from, but you're Jews. <laughs> we know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this was this was kind of a common thing. And there is some evidence to suggest that Joe from now on, when I say Joe, I'm talking you know about Joe Jr. We're talking mm-hmm. about the main guy. Um, So there is evidence that he would have had some sort of contact with this as a thing. Lucy would later tell stories of Joe passionately telling the stories of the original population of America going into such detail that you would think he was reading from a book. 
<laughs> he would tell these wild stories and then this person named this would say this and then they wore this type of thing and he would like get really into it and it was like mm-hmm. theater for the family. They're like, yeah, we don't have TV. Go off, son. <laughs> yeah. So there's no doubt in my mind that despite the sporadic education that Joe was reading probably anything that came into his house as well as he could anyway. And he was deeply intelligent. So he would read these stories and be like, oh, shit. Yeah, man. Let's (laughs) fucking go. Also, I think like the contact that he had with the revivals and the different ministers and preachers and all of that, I think that probably really affected the way that he thought about the entertainment aspect of Mm -hmm. running a church. Totally. So that is Joe's early life. Let's talk about lawsuits, fraud, and family fun. The first one says, the gold tablets that were totally real. According to later accounts, in 1823, Smith was visited by the angel. I'm going to pronounce this Moroni, but I always read it in my mind as Moroni because it's moronic. <laughs> Seriously, like it, it, I have to think about it before I say it. I'm like, Moroni. That's usually, ah. <laughs> And this account has changed a lot, by the way. There are a few different versions of it. So he was told by this angel in 1823 that he would unearth this book written on plates of gold, which contained the religious writings of the prophets of ancient America. The buried treasure was also purported to contain a breastplate and a set of interpreters composed of two seer stones set in a frame. All of this was conveniently located near his home. (laughs) (laughs) It's destiny, babe. Destiny. So it was in a spot called Hill Kimura, And that is a thing that modern Mormons still talk about, the Hill Kimura experience. Smith wanted to take all this shit immediately. He was like, I am a treasure hunter. My family's poor. <laughs> Let's go. And the angel was like, no, no, no. Because I need you to bring your brother Alvin. This is before Alvin died. And he wasn't able to. So the the angel was like, oh, well, I didn't see that coming. Apparently for four years, he tried to get these fucking tablets, but he couldn't get them until the fourth year. The first time the angel said, bring your brother in a year and then you can have them. Brother died. He's like, whoopsies. (laughs) (laughs) Now what? (laughs) And he's like, come back next time. No, don't bring anyone. Bring someone. So there was always just some sort of reason. Mm -hmm. Um, Meanwhile, the Smith family was not doing well. We already know that the Smith family was not okay. So the family ended up doing like odd jobs, all hands on deck, right? Joe Jr. and Joe Sr. were treasure hunters. Using seer stones, they purported to be able to find lost treasure. This was around the time of a lot of people being like, there's Spanish treasure hidden everywhere. (laughs) Like the Spanish left silver here and it's never been found. You know, you could go up to someone's farm and say, I have looked into the seer stone and I see that there is buried gold right under your feet. (laughs) We're digging up your crops, bitch. (laughs) But he had a shiny like stone that was brown and it had like, it was pretty. It was a pretty rock. I would put it on a shelf. (laughs) He would put it into his hat And then he would put his face in the hat and he would claim to be able to see where things were buried. So he would be like, I see that it is in this spot in your yard. Start digging, motherfuckers. And was he right or or no? No. No, he wasn't (laughs) right. Like, that's fine. Let's just like keep doing it. 
they were so regularly not right that they actually ended up having to go to court for fraud. At the time, they called it disorderly person. So both he and his father ended up having to go to court because they essentially defrauded somebody. Mm -hmm. So the person was like, I want my fucking money back. Smith described his divination methods as such. He said he had a certain stone, which he had occasionally looked at to determine where hidden treasures in the bowels of the earth were that he professed to tell in this manner where gold mines were a distance underground and had looked for Mr. Stowell several times. So he was basically hired by this guy because he said, (laughs) go ahead and let me uh, go ahead and you pay me up front and I'll tell you where your gold mines are, my friend. And of course, he fucking didn't. He said that he gave it up because it was hard on his eyes and he never solicited business of this kind. It just came to him. But that's not true. In 1838, Joseph Smith actually did admit to all of this, but he downplayed his role into being like just a bystander. Like, I was Mm -hmm. just there. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, he hired treasure hunters, but I was just like hanging out on the side. Like, hey, man, what you doing? (laughs) He didn't want to be in any way, shape or form tied to like the seer stuff. Mm -hmm. He wasn't interested. So around the time of him doing that last thing before he ended up going to court, he was staying with the family of Isaac and Elizabeth Lewis Hale. And they had a daughter, Emma Hale. And can you imagine where this is going? He's going to marry her. As a child, Emma was deeply religious. She was a Methodist. And that was pretty popular, apparently, in the area that she was in. So she lived in Harmony, Pennsylvania. It was called Willingsboro at the time, I think. A family tradition suggests that Isaac Hale overheard his young daughter, Emma, praying for him in the woods near their home and that this contributed to his spiritual conversion. So he was like, oh, my daughter's so cute. I want (laughs) to like the things that she likes. Oh, that's (laughs) nice. So Emma most likely attended the female seminary in Great Bend Township, and she later taught school. So while Joe Jr. was boarding at the Hale house, he and Emma started flirting and Isaac Hale immediately was like, fuck no, he's a treasure seeker. He can't take care of you. Like, I do not approve. Mm-hmm. No. So these two ended up eloping. She's like, he's like Jesus, though, dad. Come on, dad. He's like, he's so passionate and like I'm bored. <laughs> <laughs> I can't have sex until marriage. <laughs> Please. <laughs> That did not go over well with the family, but I think at the time, Isaac specifically, like the the dad was like, all right, well, you can live with us, yeah. but I still don't like this, but you're already married. You can't do anything about it. So come on. He did that kind of under the impression that, you know, Smith was going to, Joe was going to get his shit together. He was going to, you know, start a real business. He wasn't going to do the treasure hunting shit anymore. And he, in fact, said, I refuse to do that anymore. I am not a part of that anymore. I am like above board all the way, man. Let's go. That wasn't a thing. (laughs) (laughs) So he said those things. but (laughs) Once he married Emma, supposedly he was able to find these golden tablets. She was the missing link. She was the missing link. And she ended up going with him. He wasn't allowed to bring her to see them. It was very important to the angel that nobody but but Joe see the tablets. So what he did was apparently dig them all up. But he only like even though there was all this other shit there, he only got the tablets. So he left everything else, apparently. I don't know what he did with it. He only got the tablets. He wrapped it in his coat and he ran to the borrowed horse and buggy. 
that they had for this trip. Later, people would say that, you know, he was chased through the woods by people hoping to steal the tablets from him. The man had a really bad limp. And if these were golden tablets, they would have weighed 200 pounds. (laughs) Yeah. He said they weighed around 40 to 60 pounds, which is still a lot, but you can carry that. Gold weighs a lot. He said that they were made of pure gold. And he also said that they weighed 40 to 60 pounds. So that is not a thing that is at all possible based on the measurements that he gave. It's just, it's it's not a thing. So. It's like gold plated. <laughs> gold plated. He's running through with like 200 pounds of fucking plates. An artist made a reconstruction of these plates. I can't remember what they used. I don't remember if they used pure gold or if they used something else, but the tablets are not liftable. Like you actually just can't lift them at wow. all. So it's like, what was he using? Did he use tin to well, make this? Well, it's like the power of God though was coming through him. So like he could lift anything. And maybe he didn't have a limp when he was holding the tablets. Yeah, because he's like connected to God. Yeah, he was probably flying. (laughs) (laughs) There is also evidence that people actually did hear about him getting these magical tablets. It is possible that people did chase him or like did try to find these tablets because he had defrauded people and they were like, I Uh, want my fucking money. Yeah. (laughs) They did have a property that they were living on that was ransacked. So that is a thing that happens. But the chances of like, Several people trying to like take his tablets and kill him probably did not happen. (laughs) He and Emma immediately got to work trying to translate them. So he would sit with his face in a fucking hat and translate these magical tablets that she was not allowed to see. So she would be her back turned and then he would undo the whatever was covering them and look at them. So she never actually saw the tablets, but she did report to moving them. And again, if she was able to move 200 pounds of tablet, (laughs) she's ripped. But yeah, she said that she never looked at them. She was never tempted to look at them, but she did feel them. And they made a metallic sound when she ran her finger across the the Oh my God. I like would look at them the second my husband went to sleep. I'd be like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) bitch, that's lit. Nothing, (laughs) nothing is sacred. I'm looking. (laughs) No. So the other thing that someone mentioned uh, in one of the videos that I watched is that gold actually doesn't make a sound when you touch it. Like even if it's made into leaves because Mm. it's such a dense material, it doesn't make the same kind of sounds that you would expect out of like a tin. Interesting. So he claimed that the tablets were written in what he called reformed Egyptian and he dictated the contents to Emma and she would write them out. So this went really fucking slowly at first, but he ended up like getting more help as the translation went on. In Harmony, on June 15th, 1828, Emma gave birth to her first child, which was a son named Alvin, but he only lived a few hours. And that's his brother. That's his brother's name, right? Yeah. So she very nearly died herself. She would later go on to have nine children and adopt two others with four dying at or shortly after birth and two dying as toddlers. No. This poor woman. I know. I'm so glad I wasn't alive then. (laughs) That just sounds so horrible. (laughs) I mean, I would have died. My birth process, well, my whole pregnancy was pretty bad, but birth specifically happened very quickly. It was incredibly painful. um, And almost immediately after my water burst, I got an infection. Yeah, no good. I would have 100% died. Like she was uh, sunny side up. So that means like her face was like this instead of going like this, Mm -hmm. like it's supposed to. So she wasn't coming out. Nurse actually had to reach into me and like readjust her. 
awful. Yeah, dude, I totally would have died too. My yeah. kids would have died. I wouldn't have survived because I had that weird sick. I got the weird sick. <laughs> they call the- it the weird sick. <laughs> I've told several people like I'm so happy about modern medicine and formula because we would have died. Yeah. The disorderly person charges came up again, but that was in relation to some other stuff that he did later. So (laughs) he like lied about other stuff. Okay. Well, that was more in relation to some stuff that he did when he like formally started the church. We are now going to talk about what the fuck he wrote about. There's a lot to cover here. And I will say that he was able to get some pretty respectable people on his side right off the bat. There are a few people that we'll talk about, but one of them is Martin Harris, and he was a successful farmer who was a little bit crazy, but he had money, and that ended up being all Joe really needed. (laughs) He at first fully believed because he was the type of guy who was always on a mission to find the next big thing for religion, and he was a little bit insane. But he had money, and he took an interest in the Book of Mormon and the Golden tablets, but he almost immediately was like, I actually don't know if I believe this. Like almost immediately he was like, this kind of sounds like bullshit. (laughs) They got him back, but he was dubious at best. Another guy (laughs) that we'll talk about later is Oliver Cowdery or Cowdery. And he replaced Emma as the scribe. And then this shit started kicking out immediately. Yeah. I mean, a woman wasn't in charge anymore. So... (laughs) Before that, it was like Emma and every once in a while it would be like one of his brothers. But like now it's it's this guy who is like fully educated. And he also had like a history of reading about the lost tribes of Israel. I feel like they just fed off of each other. Yeah. yeah. And he like filled in the blanks a little bit. So the completed work was published in 1830 by printer E.B. Grandin. And then... In April 6th, Smith and his followers formally organized the Church of Christ. So that's what it was called before. It was Jesus Christ and the Church of Latter-day Saints. All right. So before I actually talk about the Book of Mormon, I'm going to talk about the three witnesses. The three witnesses is basically a collective name that Joe gave the people that he wanted to say like, yeah, totally, dude. I've seen it. These things are real. So already people were like, this is bullshit. And Joe is like, God, what am I going to do to get these people on my side? (laughs) Oh, I'm going to convince some people to say that they've seen these things. So he got Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris and David Whitmer. And all three men eventually broke and said, yeah, I didn't see anything. Oh, shit. But that doesn't mean that they didn't believe You know, Martin Harris even said, I saw it with my spiritual eyes. So like he wasn't deterred, even though he didn't like physically see anything. Mm -hmm. And some of them even changed what they said. So some people said, no, I didn't see shit. And then they said, oh, no, but I did. Okay, so are you embarrassed? that you lied. So <laughs> I now you're just my going back on it. Yeah. So basically he took these men into the woods. He was like, the angel wants you to see. And they provided a written statement to say like, yeah, we all saw this shit. Don't worry about it, man. It's true. Wow. In June... 1829, like backtracking a little bit from the publishing, he dictated a revelation stating that in the Book of Mormon are all things written concerning my church, my gospel, and my rock. Wherefore, if you shall build up on my church and my gospel and my rock, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. So basically he's saying, follow me, 
you're golden. Let's talk about Oliver Cowdery. Cowdery. Oh, my God. So he was a school teacher and early convert to Mormonism. He was actually distantly related, but had never met Joe. But what's interesting about him is that his family had a history in the radical Zionist sect, the New Israelites, whose core beliefs were that members were modern Israelites, that strict dietary practices were to be upheld in accordance with the law of Moses. And in Mormonism, you're not allowed to drink anything alcohol oriented or um, coffee or tea. Mm-hmm. And like most radical sects, the group displayed spiritual gifts and made prophecies. The other thing is, before he served as one of the three witnesses, he already had a history with the same printer that printed a book that talked about the Native Americans as the one of the lost tribes of Israel. Martin Harris was a respected farmer. Like I said, he was like the money man. But one biographer wrote that his imagination was excitable and fecund. One letter says that Harris thought that a candle sputtering was the work of the devil and that he had met Jesus in the shape of a deer and walked and talked with him for two or three miles. little bit nuts. The last person was David Whitmer. So Whitmer and his family were among the earliest adherents to the Latter-day Saints movement, his whole family. He actually found out about this and then he brought his dad's side of the family into it. He was like, come on, guys, let's go. Emma and Joseph apparently lived with David Whitmer for a little bit in Fayette, New York. They said that while traveling there with David, they saw an elderly man walking alongside the road. After offering him a ride, the man declined, saying he was headed to Kimura and then disappeared suddenly. And then they said that they found him like under a shed. (laughs) Okay. But Joseph identified this man as the angel Morani. (laughs) Morani. Oh, my God. So Whitmer also, you know, had his own visions and believed in seer stones and all of that bullshit. That's what you need to know about these three fools. Mark Twain, in his book, Roughing It, said, All men have heard of the Mormon Bible, but few except the elect have seen it or at least taken the trouble to read it. I brought away a copy from Salt Lake. The book is a curiosity to me. It is such a pretentious affair and yet so slow, so sleepy, such an insipid mess of inspiration. It is chloroform in print. (laughs) Okay. The book seems to be merely a prosy detail of imaginary history with the Old Testament for a model, followed by a tedious plagiarism of the New Testament. The author labored to give his words and phrases the quaint, old-fashioned sound and structure of our King James translation of the scriptures, and the result is a mongrel, half-modern glibness, half-ancient simplicity and gravity. The latter is awkward and constrained, the former natural but grotesque by the contrast. Whenever he found his speech growing too modern, which was about every sentence or two, he ladled in a few such scriptural phrases as exceeding sore and it came to pass, etc., and made things satisfactory again. Wow, this is a harsh review. And it came to pass was his pet. If he had left that out, his Bible would have only been a pamphlet. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> Mark Twain is not fucking around. Yeah. Smith said the title page and presumably the actual title of the 1830 edition came from the translation of the very last leaf of the golden plates and was written by the prophet historian Morani. I actually don't know if this person existed. Hmm. I assume he might have. 
because a lot of this shit is just ripped from the Bible and then reworked. Mm -hmm. But I didn't bother to look into it because you will see that all of this is nonsense and it's not (laughs) really relevant. (laughs) Not relevant. The title page states that the purpose of the Book of Mormon is to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel what great things the Lord hath done for their fathers and also to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations. The book describes a variety of visions or visitations to some early inhabitants in the Americas involving Jesus. Most notable among these is described the visit of Jesus to a group of early inhabitants shortly after his resurrection. So they said Jesus died. He was put on a cross. He died. He was buried. Three days later, he came out. And then a little bit later, he went to America and said, look, I'm here. What's up? (laughs) At the time of people settling into the Americas, there were a lot of things that they just couldn't believe the indigenous people had done. They couldn't believe these amazing mounds that they had built because mound building, it was kind of like the the pyramids, right? Yeah. People look at them and they're like, they have to be built by aliens because there's no way brown and black people would have been able to pull this off. Mm -hmm. They looked at these mounds and these structures and they were like, there's no way these natives could have done this. White people had to have done this. And if they aren't white now, they might have been white then. (laughs) Oh my (laughs) God. So the Book of Mormon kind of expounds upon that in a lot of ways. And this was like a super common thing in history. Well, now we know that Native Americans or indigenous peoples of America came across the Bering Strait from Asia. Uh That is proved genetically. There isn't even really the lost tribes of Israel. That's not a thing that exists. That was like a, a myth. So the Book of Mormon resembles the Bible and is borrowed pretty heavily from the Bible and from a couple of other sources, but it's written in a way where it is very clear that the person is trying to write like the King James Version. Yeah. It's not like he translated this and he was like, you know, how would a person from 100 BC say something? Yeah. He said, how would King James say this shit? And that's how this angel and this prophet wrote it. And I haven't read the whole Book of Mormon because, God, I don't hate myself. Well, I hate myself, but not to that degree. (laughs) I haven't read the whole thing, but sometimes the way that Joseph Smith talked and wrote elsewhere was very much like he wrote the Book of Mormon. So it's like he had a switch where he was like, I need to sound serious now. And it came to be that I decided that I would like my sandwich toasted. (laughs) Did I sound serious? We toast my sandwich, please. It came to be. In the Book of Mormon, he says, a group of Hebrews migrated from Jerusalem to America in about 600 BC, and it was led by a prophet, Lehi. They multiplied and eventually split into two groups. And on one group, the Lamanites, those were the bad guys. So God didn't like those guys. He was like, listen, I want to make it real clear that I don't like these guys. These are not my guys. So I'm going to curse them with black skin. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, dark skin, because the Canaanites had the black skin. And then on the other side, the Nephites were able to keep their light skin because they were the good ones. Mm. Eventually, the Nephites were successful. They built big cities, but eventually the Lamanites, they destroyed them. The whole idea is that God cursed the people who saw proof 
of God's greatness and saw that Jesus was the the son of God and decided, nah, I'm still not into it. And he cursed them with dark skin. Mm. And this is repeated in the yeah. Book of Mormon. If you are evil, you have dark skin. If you are good, you are white and delightsome. And that is a literal phrase, white and delightsome. Classic. Yeah. So according to the book, the history and the teachings of Jesus were abridged and written on gold plates by the prophet Mormon. His son, Moroni, made additions and buried the plates in the ground where they remained for about 1400 years until the angel told Joe to dig them up outside his house. The Mormons now have fully walked back from the idea that black people are evil. And they've changed the Mormon Bible to not say white and delightsome and to not say the curse of dark skin and things of that Mm -hmm. nature. It's in all of their history. And in Mm -hmm. fact, black people were not allowed to hold priesthood until the 70s. Wow. They don't hold to that today, but it was still impacting a large portion of pretty much everything until the 70s. Well, and it's like once that's there, it's there. You know what I mean? Yeah. They've tried to backtrack also on like, well, what they meant was pure. (laughs) If an angel gave him the exact way to translate it and he said that, then that's clearly what they meant. So either you're racist as shit and so is your prophet or... Or it's a load of shit. Or it's a load of shit. Or all of it. All of those things. All of the idea of like brown people being inherently bad went into the the future of the Mormon church. Like mm-hmm. there were indigenous like re-education programs led by the Mormons. They took slaves in Utah. The Mormons had slaves? Absolutely. So even though they claimed to be, and Joseph specifically stated like in so many words that he was an abolitionist, he still didn't believe that black and brown people were equal to them because obviously how could he if he thought that they didn't believe in Jesus and that's why they got a curse Mm -hmm. of dark skin. The idea that you could make someone white and delightsome by changing their mind about Jesus and making them a Mormon was a real thing. There was a, I want to say like a deacon or a priest in the 60s who remarked that a teenage native girl was sitting between her two parents and her two parents were darker than she was. And he said, look, you can see the proof she is becoming white and delightsome. Oh, that's awful. It's like, no, that's a genetic difference, Mm -hmm. my friend. It happens everywhere. So yeah, that's supposedly not a thing anymore. But also you need to know that all of the current Quorum of the Twelve, which is like the Twelve Apostles, the people leading the church, essentially outside of the president of the church, who is technically the main prophet. Mm -hmm. The Quorum of the Twelve, all white guys like 60 and over. They might say that they're not racist, but they're they're fully engaged in like the white is right kind of thing. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the Quorum of the Twelve before we move on to the last and probably most sensationalistic part of what we're going to talk about in this first part. The climax of part one coming up next. Oh, it's a good climax, too. You're going to love it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or LDS Church, the Quorum of the Twelve 
12 apostles is one of the governing bodies in the church hierarchy. And members of the Quorum of the 12 Apostles are apostles is what they call themselves. Like, And they mean it literally. With the calling to be prophets, seers, revelators, evangelical ambassadors, and special witnesses of Jesus Christ. And this is like really important because there is no room for being wrong. Mm-hmm. There just isn't. And in fact, I, I can't remember the exact phrasing of it, but one of the Quorum of Twelve actually said something to the effect of even if your priest is wrong, you don't say anything because he's your priest. It's like Mormon code. Yeah, it's like, no, he's right. Even if he's wrong, he's right. I don't like that. This is fully the kind of culture mm-hmm. that we're engaging in here. Mm-hmm. The priests are prophets. Anything that they say goes. And Joseph Smith on several occasions said what I approximate as like, well, if it ends up being bad, then it was the devil. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Zero accountability. Yeah, exactly. The last thing that we're going to talk about today is borrowing of occult practices. The early Mormon church especially, but the Mormon church in general, is rooted in occult practices to a degree that was to me astounding. Folk mysticism obviously is going to be a part of it because that was just how the whole thing started, right? Mm -hmm. Folk medicine, folk magic, divination, seer stone, like all of this shit has been incorporated into the general practices. In a draft of her memoirs, Lucy Max Smith referred to folk magic. I shall change my theme for the present, but let not my reader suppose that because I shall pursue another topic for a season that we stopped our labor and went at trying to win the faculty of Abrick. Drawing magic circles, or Sue's saying, to the neglect of all kinds of business. We never during our lives suffered one important interest to swallow up every other obligation. But whilst we worked with our hands, we endeavored to remember the service of and the welfare of our souls. So she's basically saying, like, we didn't stop our shit. Mm -hmm. We just added to it. Mm -hmm. So they were just a part of the larger impulse to save their souls, essentially. In fact, a lot of his earliest followers were specifically because he practiced these occult traditions, what we consider occult traditions now. Obviously, treasure-seeking activities, scrying, divination, prophesying, like all of that shit is a Mm -hmm. part of it. The next thing that is kind of rumored is that Joseph Smith was deeply into astrology. Love it. I know you love this part. A little unrelated, but I posted a selfie on Reddit on like just like the selfie subreddit because it's fun and I like doing it. And someone was like, Aries or Taurus? And I was like, Aries? And then I've been thinking about it literally all day because like all I did was post a selfie and and on my profile, there's no information. (laughs) I'm just like, how did you know that? Do I have an Aries face? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah, I felt like freaked out. I'm like, what the hell? I like looked at my profile. I'm like, don't I like write something about it? You have an Aries face. Aries or Taurus. I'm like, that's weird, but okay. Wait, what is the Aries? (laughs) I'm an Aries. It's a ram. It's a ram? You're either Mm -hmm. a goat person or a bull. (laughs) Right? Your face. Your horns, bitch. (laughs) 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 I'm like dick on Reddit. Uh, Smith said on the night of Sunday, September 21st, 1823, an angel visited him. We talked about that. But apparently that specific date is very important in astrology. September 21st was an especially auspicious night in astrological terms being a full moon and autumnal equinox. And I don't know what that thing is, but there's another thing. I don't know what any of that means because I don't do astrology, but there's a rumor 
that a pendant representing Jupiter in astrology was found among the possessions of Joseph Smith after he was killed. And astrologically speaking, Jupiter is associated with the principles of growth, expansion, healing, prosperity, good fortune, and miracles. Jupiter governs long distance and foreign travel, big business and wealth, higher education, religion, and the law. Okay. What's the symbol of Jupiter? I fucking don't know. You know, boys go to Jupiter to get more stupider. And that's exactly what this dipshit (laughs) did. I actually don't know what it looks like. I'm assuming it's just like a... It's like a squiggle. A little (laughs) squiggy, squiggy wiggy. Yeah, with some like dots. That sounds sounds accurate to me. It's totally (laughs) spot on. What's going to like really thrill you is that there is a heavy influence with Freemasons. Joseph Smith Sr. was a practicing Freemason. Alvin was a practicing Freemason before he died. Freemasons in New York were apparently hated by everybody. And Mm -hmm. I'm not entirely sure why other than it's just weird. (laughs) We just don't like you. And also like the Freemasons were almost operating as their own like little mafia. Like someone would write something bad about the Freemasons and then all of a sudden that person would end up dead and their printing press would be burned to the ground. (laughs) But who knows what happened, really? Oh, the olden days. Oh, I'm sorry. I said Alvin, but not. it wasn't Alvin. It was his other brother, Hiram. What a name. I know, right? There's a lot of that in there. In the golden tablets, as they were described much later, it was said that there was the Masonic tools were there. It was the compass and the, the, I don't know, the shit. The square and compass. I want to say like a hammer, but that's like the hammer and sickle is like the communist thing. The compass and and the other masonry stuff. Those like Freemason things. The square and compass. Those symbolic (laughs) elements. I'm sure it'll say it somewhere in my notes and I'll be like, oh, it's that. But uh, they said that those were on top of the first leaf. Like, well, it's amazing that this this person knew about Freemasonry before it even existed as a concept, but whatever. (laughs) Mormons have a church and then they have temple. And to be able to go into the temple, you have to do a lot of rites. So you have to eat specific things. You have to have talked to your priest a specific amount of time and made sure that Mm -hmm. you are clean in spirit and in body. It requires a special kind of cleansing. It requires special garments. There are temple garments, which are like the magic underwear. But then there are also like regular clothing that is all white. You have to go through very specific methods of dressing. And then Mm -hmm. you do like whatever temple shit you do and then switch your some of your garments around to the other side so it starts on like the left and then it ends on the right that's interesting that's complicated it's complicated and weird you have to take your shoes off and then put them back on it's fucking dumb this is very much like masonic temple rituals it's like what it's like this stuff is weird unless you're doing it for god it's not like it's weird unless you're doing it for god it's always weird but at a certain point you've committed too far to stop Mm, yeah you're like well (laughs) I got to put on my magic underwear. And here we are. (laughs) With the magic underwear, apparently they will make magic underwear specifically for Mormons who are in combat overseas. So they have to be specific colors. Even though in temple you have to wear all white, when you are in the military, you have to wear the specific colors that they give you. So you send them whatever you have to wear and they'll put the little like 
compass and whatever on it and all the like stupid markings that they have to have. Wow. Yeah, it's it's intense. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to me. So like episode one is like the introduction, right? And just kind of like, yeah. this is what's up. This is who this is. This is what's is. up. This is where all the shit's coming from. This is a prereq for the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> you must listen. Get out your syllabus, Jolie. Let's highlight some shit. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about is the potential, what a lot of people think actually happened with these original visions. And that is that it seems very likely that Joseph Smith very much enjoyed some hallucinogens. (laughs) Not just the ginseng. (laughs) Exactly. Both junior and senior might have imbibed in some delightful hallucinogens. So have you heard of set setting substance support? Mm Mm-mm. There was a whole realm of psychotherapy in the, I want to say like 60s that that delved into like how to use hallucinogens to support relief from various traumas and other mental issues. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of something that's happening now. Yeah, exactly. So the idea of set setting substance support was, I think, initially brought about by that. But Timothy Leary, the Mm -hmm. famous LSD was he a psychologist? I can't remember. The guy. He was a chemist. He was a chemist, I thought. Yeah, something like that. He basically wanted to see if he could produce positive results from DMT instead of the typical like your grandmother crawls out of your kneecap and then stabs you in the heart kind of results, right? Or like the devil <laughs> comes out and like stabs your dog in front of you. Yeah. He wanted to see if he could create a DMT experience through set setting substance and support that would be positive instead Mm -hmm. of wildly negative like most are. He found that you could actually create a positive DMT experience by doing specific things. Set is the mental state a person brings to the experience. So if you think that you're going to go into something seeing an angel, you might. Setting is like we're in this magical wooded area. Everything's Mm -hmm. beautiful and peaceful. I'm going to see an angel. We're good to go. Substance is what you take and how much you take. And support is the people around you saying, mm-hmm. oh, my God, do you see that angel? Yeah. I see that angel, too. Yeah. Yeah. So like feeding into your hallucination, essentially. Yeah. And they were using DMT. Timothy Leary wanted to see if he could produce positive results from DMT. It's unknown what exactly Joseph Smith was using, Mm -hmm. but there is a lot to suggest that he had experience with magic mushrooms. He actually carried a stone on him that looked like the cactus that you get ayahuasca from. Interesting. He clearly had some connection with a Native American shaman. So (laughs) so he might have been doing peyote at some point. Yeah. He... 150% liked liquor. And in fact, in some of his earliest translating of the Golden Tablets, it was clear that he was very intoxicated. Emma Smith, his wife, would say that he would basically like leave for a little bit and then come back and like not even ask where he was. He would just be like stream of consciousness, which sounds to me like some super high shit. (laughs) 
Yeah. You know, I didn't know this, but there is a lot of support for early Christianity relying heavily on hallucinogenic substances, specifically in anointing oils and in sacramental wines and things of that nature. I believe it. Yeah. And a lot of what some of the earliest converts to Mormonism experienced was, you know, they would either be anointed or they would drink the sacramental wine and eat the sacramental bread and then see visions. Mm -hmm. They're just like getting dosed. Oh, my God. There were actually people at the time who said these people are are eating drugs and then having this experience. This is not a real prophet. Yeah. These fucking baptisms and and church experiences in the early days were wild. Yeah. People would show up to watch. Joseph, I think, was drugging some of the people who supported him early, like Martin and Oliver and all of those fucking people, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Oliver told a story of them going into the woods to try to see the golden tablets so that he could have the witnesses. And Martin was like, I don't see anything. I I think I'm just bringing everyone down, man. I'm just going to (laughs) go. So he's like having a real bad trip, right? Yeah. And then all of them start seeing it. And then he comes and they're like seeing it and they're saying, don't you see? Don't you see? And he's like, I see. (laughs) So it's like, (laughs) that is like so stereotypically hallucinogenic activity. Mm -hmm. Like you're all on like LSD or whatever. You're like, don't you see the trees? They're growing hands and fingers and they're trying to talk to us. Don't you see? And you're like, fuck yeah, I see. Definitely. Because you're like, you want to see. Well, and also it's like if you were like dosed with something and not knowing, like I just have this memory of the first time I took acid and listening to Beck. I don't remember the name of the album, but like the whole album art was like kind of drawn. It was like illustrated or whatever. And I remember looking at the inside pamphlet and all just like dancing around and like, you know, I and I looked at my friend Sarah and I was just like, Beck fucking knew. And she's like, what? I'm like, he <laughs> knew that this, you know, just like this oh dumb my shit. God. Like this is this is what it was going to look like for for me. For me personally. <laughs> and I like knew that I was on acid and I was saying things like that, like out loud. <laughs> right. You know, it was my first time. So like, obviously, I didn't continue like acting like that. <laughs> <laughs> when I would take drugs. If you're a dose, you're just like, oh my fucking God, this guy yeah. knows. And this like, fucking knows. <laughs> He's right. Yeah. He's so fucking right. There's a lot of evidence that he was drugging people and that people at the time knew he was drugging people. Dude, I love kind it. Of- that is amazing. <laughs> it's like so good. <laughs> so I started looking into it and I was like, oh, this guy's just a liar. And then I found that bit and I'm like, Oh, wait. This guy like, likes this to party. <laughs> Every single time I think it can't get any like weirder. I'm just like, what? <laughs> but what? There are some people who think that some of his earlier visions could have even been inspired by him just like being a teenager and being like, I'm going to eat this little mushroom that I found over here. Wow. Why not? <laughs> and I mean, if his dad was already, you know, imbibing in some shit and having his own crazy times in the woods. <laughs> it's like we don't we don't need to drink, guys. OK, like fuck alcohol. Right. But here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. That. Alcohol is a great carrier for magic mushrooms. True that. It's very likely that he was getting drunk and also 
getting high tripping balls so one of the things that i also found interesting was one of the major negative side effects of psychedelic experimentation is delusional ideation and one of the most common pathologies associated with frequent high dose psychedelic experimentation is persistent recurring delusions of grandeur mm-hmm. again this doesn't happen like with your first one right and it doesn't even happen if you've like taken lsd a few times it's like if you're taking it all the fucking time mm-hmm. then you kind of get wrapped up in your own like little world and you start to think, well, I am God. Well, and it's a little bit confusing too, because it like opens up this door to a different reality. And I definitely never like thought of myself as some sort of prophet or anything. But I definitely took a lot of LSD in college and I didn't know like what was going on. And I thought I was just like, like God and I like started my own religion and like here we are. <laughs> and then I started drugging other people so that they'd believe too and it was just all real normal stuff guys it's totally normal like college experimentation <laughs> I think what's really fascinating about it is a that it happened at the perfect time in American history and we'll talk about this a little bit next time like there's no other time that this could have happened and then also the church currently, instead of saying, look, this was a flawed man with great ideas, has leaned into it. We're all getting <laughs> our own planet. You're part of a planet from our God, who is just one of many gods who populated their planet. I got to say, I'm fine with it, though. <laughs> I, I do. You're like, I don't want a planet. <laughs> but the problem is, is you're a woman. So you would just have to bear all the baby, the baby spirits of the planet. And Benny would have to be the God. Yeah, I'm not vibing anymore. Like, you know, like the drugs. <laughs> that part I can work with. But yeah, that's just the first. That's like the warm up to the mafia, literal mafia activity of the Mormon church. in oh, its I can't beginnings wait. And currently, actually. This was just like, it's like I keep saying, I'm making this dumb college reference, but this was the boring class you have to take before the really exciting one. Did you think this was boring? No, I mean, I don't think this information (laughs) is boring at all. I mean, I think it's like really incredible. cry now. But it's also, you know, just like the regular history. It's like, how did this happen? Exactly. This is like the backstory, but you're about to tell like the story that other people don't know. I know everybody's interested in the polygamy. We'll get into that. Blah, blah, blah. But also murder. I can't wait. Treason. Like, come on. You have to say like just those three things. Polygamy, murder, treason. Yeah, I mean, you're not boring, girl. I love what you have to say. (laughs) But I do love the drama of next episode. Yeah. Next episode is all drama. And you get to meet like amazing characters like Brigham Young. And I can't wait. And you get to, you know, figure out why Joe and company had to like run from several different locations, pack up and move literally all of their congregants to another city. Damn, dude. Because they just kept pissing people off in various interesting ways. But people do love being Mormon. Well, do they love it or are they taught it? We have a friend who was raised Mormon who hated it. And we have done many a non-Mormon things with him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as a teaser, I can tell you that the marriage of other people's wives was a thing. So a a wife might have more than one husband. Interesting. So it's not just a husband that has more than one wife. In the early days, that is. But it's mainly based on Hmm. like who Joe wanted to fuck. (laughs) No, what a dick. I know. He was just like, listen, you're out of town. 
We're changing the rules. <laughs> Your wife is pretty. <laughs> she's she's married to me too. FYI. Yeah, so it's going to be fun times. You're you're going to have to come back for like the other weird shit. I'm not going to say like the real weird shit because all of this is weird. But this was just like the base level. Shit's going to get freaky. All right, guys, you have been listening to I Read a Thing. You can find out more about us on our website at iReadAThing.com. You should. I hope you will. Please, God, do. Please, please, Mormon God, do (laughs) rate us on Apple Podcasts. We love your support. We think you're wonderful. But if you rate us under a four, you did that because of the devil. 100%. Without a doubt, I'm seeing visions about this right, <laughs> right now. Oh my God, you guys. I just saw a vision too. I think Emma's transmitting some like real <laughs> angel shit to me. Be our best friends. We currently don't have anyone willing to follow us to Utah. We're hoping to get there someday. We actually are trying to convert everybody to Mormonism. That's actually what this episode was about. So see you in Utah. Bye. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm. Ah!